Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> like many of you, we had family with us for the holiday. Our five-year-old grandson is in his ninja phase. He wants to karate kick everything in the house. Her 18-month-old granddaughter was fascinated with the nativity scene. I'm happy to report that she found Jesus many times. <laughs> Do you know how these family Christmases go? Every light in the house is switched on. The dishwasher runs continuously. Hourly trips to shop and save. It's basically a basically peppermint flavored chaos. <laughs> and I think about that and I read these words Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Those are wonderful, well-loved words, but they don't reflect any experience that I've ever had uh, regarding Christmas. Oh, perhaps I could buy it the night before Christmas. But what about the day after? You know, when the echoes of silent night give way to the shriek in pain of someone who has just stepped barefoot on a Lego. And those visions of sugar plums dancing in the heads of sleeping children are replaced by wide-awake kids jacked up on sugar, arguing who gets to play with the empty boxes. And your fond hopes of finally some peace on earth have been thwarted by the dreaded discovery of some assembly required <laughs> or batteries not included. Honestly, as much as I enjoy this season, uh, I'm telling you that sometimes after Christmas is a bit of a nightmare. But however nightmarish our holiday experiences may be, it would be nothing compared to what Joseph, Mary, and their newborn son endured in the days following that first Christmas. And it is that story which is the gospel reading for the first Sunday after Christmas. A choice which I admit at first glance seems a bit curious, if not downright inappropriate. I mean, here we are on the fifth day of Christmas, but don't be looking for five golden rings. The church rather would have us ponder a middle-of-the-night escape from terror, the slaughter of innocent children, and a forced exile into the Galilean boondocks. What's up with that? 
The kind of disturbed mind wants to ruin the merrymaking of millions by telling us a story like that. Actually, on one level, it is a story we know all too well. You'd virtually have to have been hiding in a cave not to know that ours is a world where families can quickly turn into refugees seeking asylum. And innocent children are victimized almost daily by those whose lust for power is their only concern. It's the sort of thing you might read on the front page of any newspaper. The sad truth is that this story, shocking as it may be, is not some literary outlier at all. It is rather a poignant reminder of why Christmas is ultimately about a Savior and not just a warm, sentimental story about stars and shepherds and a manger. There's no arguing that the traditional Christmas story provides us with an inviting and wonderful rationale for our celebrations. A special baby is born in humble circumstances with a strong hint of the miraculous in the air, serenaded by angelic choirs, visited and worshipped by far-flung royalty. It's a snapshot of virtually every nativity scene ever. But what happens when you venture beyond the manger? What lies behind the traditional Christmas crest that makes this story a whole lot more complicated than it seems at first glance? That's what this text does. It, it intrudes itself into our nice, manageable nativity scene and complicates the way we think about Christmas. In this text, Matthew is really telling two stories. Obviously, he's telling us the story of this nondescript peasant family destined to arguably become humankind's preeminent family. But because his readers are Jewish, Matthew also tells the story of the coming of Israel's long-awaited son of David, the Messiah. To do this, he employs here a literary device that he commonly reverts to in his gospel, namely, the fulfillment of prophecy. Linking the story of this humble man, Joseph, his young wife, Mary, and infant son to a much older and historically significant meta-narrative, the story of Israel. The merging of these two stories will usher in the climactic chapter in the redemption of the world. The opening scene of our text takes place after the wise men have returned home, leaving a ruthless king named Herod to stew over the occasion of their visit. Herod had been named king of the Jews by the Romans in 40 B.C. The Magi stopped off at Herod's palace asking directions and told him that they had come from afar to worship him who is born, quote, king of the Jews. 
Now, it's not likely that those words put Herod into the Christmas spirit. Herod is thought to have suffered greatly from numerous physical uh, afflictions, uh, the likes of which are not likely to give one a positive outlook on life. And beyond this, he appears to have been certifiably paranoid. He had a wife whom he dearly loved and two of his sons executed. He was deeply unsettled by the Magi's words, and rightly so. Frederick Bruner notes that up to the point of the Magi's visit, Matthew always refers to King Herod. But following the Magi worshiping the child, Herod is never again called king. Matthew understands that there is a new king. But let us not kid ourselves about any modern notion uh, of the peaceful transfer of power. This child is in grave danger, and God warns Joseph in a dream to flee to protect the child. So the family flees to Egypt. In his commentary on this text, Matthew Henry wrote that this is not the first Joseph who was driven from Canaan to Egypt by the anger of his brethren. And that is no coincidence. As in other places in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus here retraces, as it were, the life of ancient Israel. Jesus goes from the promised land to the classic land of escape, Egypt, just like all the patriarchs had done before him. This flight into Egypt is the analog into Egypt by Jacob and his sons, saving the covenant people from famine. And just like the infant Moses and Pharaoh, a wicked king seeks the life of this newborn child of Bethlehem. But the key analog here is the Exodus itself, which is the setting of the prophet Hosea's words, out of Egypt, I have called my son. When Hosea wrote that, he meant Israel. When Isaiah writes it, he means Jesus. This is Matthew's way of saying, look, here is the new Israel. Matthew teaches us that the new and the final exodus from slavery will be accomplished by a new Moses. And what we see in this text is both the very real vulnerability along with the utter necessity of this child. He is in danger of being killed by the forces of evil while at the same time fulfilling the hopes and the destiny of his ancestral family. Israel was chosen by God to be the means through which the entire world would be blessed. And now in the birth and the divine protection of the promised son of David, Israel's redemptive mission to the world will at last be accomplished. The focus of God's the focus here on God's protection of this child is unmistakable. It's very clear that Herod wanted to kill him. 
This is brutally borne out in verses 16 to 18, a passage often referred to as the slaughter of the innocents. Chapter 2 of Matthew opens with this beautiful story of the Magi finding the Christ child and worshiping him uh, as a kind of subtle hint that he will be the savior of the entire world. But then the text pivots immediately to this bone-chilling account of a murderous, paranoid monarch whose lust for preserving his own power knows no boundaries. Realizing that he has been duped by the Magi, Herod lashes out in vengeful anger and orders the murder of all male children in Bethlehem ages two years and younger. Bethlehem was a small town, perhaps 300 to 1,000 people. So approximately a dozen or so children would likely have been massacred. And while we find that abhorrent, in the days of Herod, that was hardly a noteworthy atrocity compared with other acts committed by this madman. To use the language of today, to Herod, those children were nothing more than collateral damage. Now the question we have is, why does Matthew report this? Why is this part of his gospel, his good news? Do we really need this gruesome story to properly celebrate Christmas? What in the world did innocent children and innocent mothers of those children have to do with peace on earth, goodwill to men? Did God just take a day off? in the aftermath of his son's birth. But Matthew hears the voice of the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah hears, in turn, a voice crying in a place called Ramah. Ramah was the place where 6th century Jews were rounded up to be deported to Babylon. Jeremiah hears the wailing of Rachel, the prototypical Jewish mother, weeping for her children who are being taken from the promised land to be scattered and enslaved and in many cases never heard from again. I've visited enough hospitals and officiated enough funerals to tell you plainly that the sound of a mother weeping for a lost child is as bad as it gets. writing here to Jewish people, hoping to convince them that Jesus is indeed the messianic king in the line of David, Matthew weaves the redemptive history of Israel into the personal history of this newborn child of Bethlehem. And he cites these Old Testament texts claiming that in what has happened with this child, these texts find their fulfillment. Literally, they are filled full of meaning. Jeremiah 31, 15 is the verse Matthew quotes here, and it depicts the morning at the prospect of exile. Rachel is heard crying out in her tomb because her children, her descendants, are no more. But go and read the entire 
31st chapter of Jeremiah. This 15th verse occurs in a setting of hope. It is good news. Despite the tears, God says there in Jeremiah 31 that even though the present circumstances appear to be an unmitigated tragedy, these exiles will return. The tears will be replaced by joy and dancing. Matthew faithfully reports the truth about Herod's madness, but he says that despite the tears of these Bethlehem mothers, there's hope because Messiah has escaped. He has escaped Herod, and he will return, and he will ultimately reign. There may be tears in the present, but the future is one in which such tears will be completely out of place and unnecessary. Because God will act to redeem his captive people, and all of the sorrows of the present shall be redeemed by the glorious future brought about by this God who acts redemptively in the gift of his Son. I've I've come to view this story as one that powerfully reminds us of the cold, hard truth that redeeming a rebellious world is a costly and risky venture. As I often told students, if salvation were an easy thing, do you think it would have required the death of God's Son? How do you recapture enemy-occupied territory without casualties? This past June, we marked the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the invasion of Europe. Invasions, as you know, are costly costly ventures. They are occasions of great sacrifice. If you can look upon row upon row of crosses on the beaches above Normandy and grasp that that this invasion evoked a powerful and deadly response from the enemy that required that kind of sacrifice. If you can see that, can we not begin then to understand the cost? the sacrifices that would inevitably be encountered to redeem a lost world and reconcile it to its creator. More than one writer has suggested that these innocent children of Bethlehem are the first martyrs. They will not be the last. The final redemption of humankind is the most costly endeavor under ever taken. I think it's instructive to consider how the early church so quickly came to view the Jesus event in the light of Psalm 2 that was read earlier in the service. Why do the nations rage? Why do they conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. 
the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 2 is a promise of God's sovereign control of history. God's plans will not be deterred deterred by the rebellious plots of earthly leaders. So Matthew is telling his readers simply, this is a done deal. All the Herods of the world, and Lord knows there are a bunch of them out there, none of them can stop it now. There may be sorrow, there may be casualties, there may be tragedy, but the end has already been determined. The days of sorrow are numbered. As one writer put it, sin and evil have on them a divinely ordered expiration date. As the Apostle John might have put it, Jesus was spared from Herod's twisted anger because, quote, his hour had not yet come. Jesus' birth into the world was not going to be ended by the angry ravings of a psychotic puppet king. The end of Jesus' story would happen only when the times were filled full, only when all had been accomplished. As Jesus himself put it, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This this paragraph recording the rage of Herod unmasks the reality and the, the darkness and danger of power. Lord Acton was right. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. The insidious truth about power is that it is more addictive than any drug. And once the love of power takes root in a person, there is nothing that person will not do. There is no place that person will not go in order to enhance their power. It is no coincidence that Paul's primary way of identifying the forces of evil is to use the phrase principalities and powers. Let me just suggest that all of us Latter-day Christians would do well to remember the dark side of power. When we try to interpret the issues and the political posturings that confront us in these complicated times, my sense is that most of the ongoing gridlock behind what we call our national government these days, is at its heart a life and death struggle for power. Let us beware. We live in a world filled with Herods. And whatever, and whether they express their power politically 
or through armies or through corporate control of the marketplace, we must never, ever forget that we are Christians. Our symbol is not a flag, not a gun, not a dollar sign. Our symbol is a cross. Now Matthew tells us almost matter-of-factly in the final verses of this text that this child returns to his home country not as a triumphant king. That's going to come much, much later. He returns to be, for the time being, consigned to a backwater town called Nazareth. Nazareth was so obscure that the first century Jewish historian Josephus, when he listed the towns of Galilee, Nazareth didn't even make the list. Nazareth was Nowheresville. And Matthew cites here the fulfilling of a prophecy that no one's ever really been able to find. Frederick Bruner suggests that for Matthew, a person from Nazareth was the epitome of a nobody. And that is precisely what the prophets had often predicted, that the Messiah, God's anointed one, would at first be considered the consummate nobody, a Nazarene. Saved from the wrath of a vengeful, psychotic ruler, this child's rightful place in the world will be contested from this point forward to the day when these earthly rulers think that they have finally disposed of him for good. So instead of living in Judea, the place that symbolized the leadership of Israel, this child will be raised in the backwater regions of Galilee. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We shall see. Today, four days after Christmas, what do you see? Our warm, sentimental takes on the season give us these wonderful images like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and away in a manger. But is that really how it was? Not according to this text. In Luke chapter 2, the Bible says that a few days after Jesus' birth, which would have been a few months before this incident in our text, that Mary and Joseph took the infant Jesus into the temple to be dedicated. And there an old prophet by the name of Simeon blessed them, and he said this to Mary, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. We see here in the words of this aged prophet Simeon that the battle between God and the forces of darkness was joined right from the beginning. Now, we've domesticated the nativity to the point where we don't tend to view Christmas through the lens of it being a direct confrontation with the forces of evil, but that's exactly what it was. 
It's understandable that so many prefer the kinder, gentler aspects of Christmas, but in so doing, we may miss the essential point. God sending his son to this earth is a frontal assault on a world claimed by evil. Herod is the personification of that evil. And we can see that Herod is indeed dangerous, even though he is destined to be overcome. Yes, Christmas is glorious, but never let us forget that Christmas has often been dangerous as well. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many. Herod knew that better than many of us modern people. The Christians in Burkina Faso know it. The Yazidi Christians of northern Iraq know it. The Christians of the Congo and India and Vietnam and dozens of other places in our world, they know just how dangerous Christmas is. They know this through the shedding of their own blood. So the next time you hear some American Christian whining about being persecuted or the so-called war on Christmas because somebody wished them happy holidays. Take a moment to remember your brothers and sisters around this world who endure the real war on Christmas. They endure because by faith they see beyond the nightmare to the rising of the day spring on high. How else does one explain their faithful witness in light of murderous brutality by the powers of darkness in their homelands? They endure the after-Christmas nightmare because they know that this dark, insidious power is destined to be broken, not by marshalling superior armies, but in a cross where these dark powers will be publicly humiliated and revealed for what they truly are, the destined-to-fail attempts to usurp the rightful king of this earth. Yes, those babies of Bethlehem were perhaps the first martyrs, and they surely will not be the last. Christmas is about good cheer, yes, but never forget... It's also about God piercing the darkness of human tragedy with the everlasting light. For Jesus to live, those innocent children died. But a day will come when an innocent Jesus will die for all the children. The deep mysteries and paradoxes of this season are evident to us in this story. Christmas has not only visions and dreams... It incorporates the nightmares of a world in the throes of darkness and drunk with power. But nightmares end when the sun comes up and the light shines heralding a new day. The first book I ever read by C.S. Lewis was his book, Mere Christianity. And I suppose the first... Lewis' quote I ever memorized was this. Enemy-occupied territory. 
That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of the Herods of this world and the nightmares they inflict on the poor and the innocent. I'm quite ready for the real king to be in charge. So you can count me in on this sabotage thing. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Thank you, our Father, for sending your Son to pierce the darkness and to herald the day when it will be vanquished forever. Enable us in this Christmas season to live as children of the light and as instruments of your kingdom, sabotaging the evil desires of the darkness and of those who would wield power in ways that contradict your will. We'll thank you for this in the name of Christ our Savior.